Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jack Snefflin. Thank you for joining us for episode 36 of our Disney Honorable Mentions. This week, we will be discussing 1985's The Black Cauldron. And this is our last Disney movie. Yep, and it is also our last episode for the year. Yeah, see, we timed that really well. I'm glad we planned it that way all the way back in April. We're talking about The Black Cauldron, which is generally regarded as Disney's worst feature. And I think by the end of the episode, we'll figure it out if that's true or not. Mm -hmm. So I had never seen this film before this viewing for the podcast. I'm sure I'm not the only one who would skip this one. Why don't you give us a brief synopsis? Okay, so we're in a standard fantasy land of Wales, and a boy named Tarin is assigned by his mentor figure mm -hmm. to take his magical pig to a safe place because the pig can tell the evil overlord where the magic artifact of doom is. He messes it up horribly, and the evil overlord, the Horned King, gets a hold of the pig. Tarin manages to save the pig, but in doing so, gets himself captured. He's thrown in the dungeon where he meets Princess Alanwe and a bard named Fluter, and they manage to escape, and Tarin grabs a magical sword by grave robbing. Nothing happens for about 20 minutes, and they meet some witches, and trade the magical sword for the cauldron. They can't destroy the cauldron, because they don't have the magic sword anymore, and the cauldron gets taken by the Horn King. The Horn King uses it to unleash an army of the undead, who start to roam across the land, but Gurgi, an annoying puka creature they met along the way, throws himself into the cauldron, and because this was a willing sacrifice, it turns the cauldron off and makes it drag all the evil back in, including the Horn King and his castle explodes. Everyone's sad for a bit, then the witches come to take the cauldron back because, you know, they can't do anything with it. They offer to trade the sword for the cauldron, and Tarin decides to trade it for Gurgi instead, deciding that he doesn't need to become a hero. Gurgi was the real hero the whole time, all that jazz. When you spill it all out like that, not a whole lot happens in this movie, given its runtime. Mm -hmm. And I cut out the whole bit where they meet the fairies, um, some stuff with the Horn King, you know, being evil. A whole character to like the cre cre creature creeper, I think. He's the sort of small goblin guy who's, I guess, the Horn King's comic relief. A not very enviable job. Imagine if Prince John from Robin Hood was a small goblin creature, but his boss was like the Witch King of Angmar. Not far off. So this movie's based on a series, The Perdane Chronicles. They were five books. This takes bits of two different books and mushes them into something, and then it got workshopped for about ten years and became what it was to the point where it's kind of an adaption in name only. I don't know. Where do you want to start with this one? Oh boy. Let's talk about some positives because... Okay. Yeah. For coming out in 1985, the art and animation are actually really well done. I'm actually pretty impressed. This rivals a lot of the early renaissance as far as animation goes oh yeah it makes a lot of use of cgi stuff but to do like animation effects not to do like cgi environments the way you saw with yeah. tarzan treasure planet yeah and honestly the effects are one of the strongest points of this film almost all of them are really good i have problems with a few of the effects so through portions of the film they have as opposed to animated the sky it's like film of a real sky and there's like a color tone pasted over it for various different scenes to make it more dramatic and it doesn't mesh well with the character animations and it makes all the characters moving around stick out like sore thumbs the other thing is, as the undead army is kind of lurching towards the countryside, there's this sort of ghosting effect going on where they leave these spectral images behind them as they walk, but it's incredibly busy and it just looks rather ugly. Mm -hmm. But apart from that, the effects do a good job of making this world feel magical, but also kind of dark and grim. Like, the tone is set really well. Mm-hmm. 
they do a pretty good use of muting the color palette when things get dark and grim and like when you're with the fairies things are much more bright and they also have a very different shades of grim depending on what's going on like the color palette for when they're meeting with the witches is very different than the color palette in the horned king's castle mm-hmm. he also has some pretty solid character design the Horn King is really cool. He's a skull in a robe with antlers. Why is he like that? What is he? No one ever says. That's just how he is. He's kind of like your bog standard lich character, but we haven't really seen that from Disney, so it definitely feels fresh and new here. I do prefer him with the full red eyes that he gets towards the end of the film and the climax. It's very unsettling. But no, his design is solid. Creeper's design is pretty good for a little lackey character. Gurgi's visual design is very good for wearing this kind of mischievous puka thing. Mm-hmm. I will say that I th- I'm not sure Fluter the Bard's design works terribly well. Mostly because I think his character would work better if he was aged down a bit and a little bit closer in age to the other characters as opposed to being effectively the same age as Terran's mentor at the beginning of the film. And for the most part, has the exact same facial design. I'm wondering if that was a cost-cutting measure more than anything else. Probably. In the same way Princess Alonwi is just someone on their way to a Ren fair. All the princesses have these like iconic outfits that you can recognize in an instant, and Alonwi is sort of like Briar Rose, but... Dingier. Yeah. And younger. Yeah. Thorn Peach or whatever. You know, like, <laughs> like, the kind you get at like Spirit Halloween that isn't licensed. Mm-hmm. Taryn, to a certain extent, also borrows heavily from Arthur from Sword in the Stone, although I think just the improvement in animation from that and the change in hair color and clothing color is enough to make him feel a bit more distinct. Yeah, and I'm okay with Taryn being a bit of a nothing because his whole thing is that he's a an assistant pig keeper and that he wants to be a mighty knight and that's his whole thing. So him being very generically designed ties into that. Mm-hmm. Speaking of that, I am conceptually into this movie as a deconstruction of the kind of Disney fairy tale thing. Disney has a lot of rags to riches stories. Disney has a lot of princesses who get through things by heart and believing in things and heroes who do mighty things by being clever and all that jazz. And here, none of that happens. Things start off not great and they end slightly better, but Tyron's still a pig boy. He's still got nothing going on with him. If the ending was any worse, I would accuse it of being a Steinbeck novel. Yeah, I think it's kind of like an Alan Moore Disney movie. Like, almost all the problems are caused by the main character. We mentioned that they traded the sword for the Black Cauldron, which seemed to be just under the ground, unfindable in this lair guarded by witches. It was probably way better where it was. The Horn King might have never found it, never had his army of the undead. Or at least took years to dig it up. Yeah. The Horn King would have never found out about the pig had they not used its powers. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Horn King was still a problem. He was still raising this army and doing bad stuff before the movie started. So it's not like it's all their fault. Yeah. But they definitely didn't actually make things all that much better. Mm-hmm. Lots of people have tried to deconstruct Disney, and that usually has this kind of mean-spirited thing. This doesn't wind up being that mean-spirited about it. It's deconstruction, but it's not like trying to be caustic. It's just a bit grimmer. And I'm glad that at least one person managed to deconstruct Disney in a way that didn't make me go, oh my gods. Yeah, this isn't Shrek. Yes. I do really enjoy Shrek, but I understand it's kind of being antagonistic. That was kind of the point. 
Right. Shrek is a good story, but if I look at it through a lens of deconstruction, I'm less excited. Exactly. Which is why I like the musical better. <laughs> Fair enough. One interesting thing about the animation, this was actually the last film where the entire film was completed in the original animation building for Disney. After this, they moved to a new building in the studio. It's a little sad that this was the kind of send-off for the original building, but it is what it is. Mm-hmm. That said, the animation does have some really interesting bits in it. Mm-hmm. Breadsword on YouTube pointed out how there doesn't seem to be a lot of food around. When Tarn gets sent off, he gets a third of a piece of bread and an apple for what may be a several day journey. And you don't see a lot of like rolling fields. You don't see a lot of people with lots on them. And a lot of characters tend to be like thin and impoverished looking, which mm-hmm. is a really good way of setting the tone. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of the film's issues come from its visual design or animation i think those are the strongest points of the film oh the griffins i keep forgetting the griffins so there's these cool like wavering dragon things that look kind of they're the fell beasts from lord of the rings who are the horn king's minion things and they're really cool and they're scary looking and when i watched this as a kid i was like "Ooh, dragons except they only have four limbs yeah i I don't want to get anybody's hopes up right no they don't breathe fire they only have four limbs they're kind of like pterodactyls yeah, they're fantasy pterodactyls. And they're called Gwiffins for some reason. Yeah. It might be from the books. That sounds like a Welsh thing. Adding some extra syllables we don't need. Mm-hmm. I think we've prolonged it as, about as long as we can. Let's go ahead and dig into some of this film's issues. Starting with the voice cast. I think n- the voice cast is not very strong. There are a couple characters who are pretty solid. The voice actor they have for the Horn King is pretty solid. I think the voice is maybe a little too raspy. It's occasionally a little difficult to understand what he's saying, but as a generic Dark Lord voice, not too bad. Mm-hmm. is not bad. Her acting is fine. She doesn't really get much to do with it because the writing isn't very strong for the characters. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Taryn's voice actor, our main character, is not very good. He's very annoying. And it doesn't feel so much acting as in reading lines off of a script. Mm-hmm. There's not a whole lot of emotional weight behind most of the performance. It's marginally better where it counts with the scene with Gurky at the end, but still not quite enough to get any sort of emotional investment in those characters. Right. And because you aren't invested in Taron, his arc over the film doesn't work. And he's really the only one who gets an arc because everyone else is just either set dressing or specifically designed to help Taryn get to where he needs to be. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to like blame the actors for things because I mean, they're, they're working hard, mm-hmm. but I really kind of want someone to just like bootleg this with like a whole new voice cast. Like I want team four star to come in and fix this movie just by talking. <laughs> yeah. We really do need like a black cauldron abridged. Although I cannot imagine the legal hurdles that, someone trying to abridge Disney content would run into. Toei is already bad enough. You put it on the same site where people upload their recut to The Hobbit to be just one movie? They're not making money off of this. This has to be a labor of love. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of labors of love, let's talk about Gurgi. <sighs> Since we're talking about voices, I'm not a huge fan of Gurgi's voice. I also realize that it's the exact same voice that Gollum had in The Lord of the Rings, provided by Andy Serkis. Oh, great prince. Deadpool starving Gurgi munchings and crunchies. 
I just don't care for it here. I don't think it fits Gurgi as a character. I think it worked much better for Smeagol slash Gollum. Mm-hmm. It would bother me less if he wasn't always talking or if he had useful things to say, but he rarely does. There was one really good bit where he found the tracks for the pig and he's leading them off. And they're like, you better not be fooling us, Gurgi. He's like, Gurgi not lie. Not this time. And that's a good line. That's a really good line. But a lot of Gurgi scenes are just Gurgi being a goofball for longer than we maybe need. Mm-hmm. It does pay off at the end in ways if you are invested in the character. However, if you are more annoyed than invested, it does not work at all. Mm-hmm. I have some issues with Gurgi. He has the importance to the plot, but he's kind of gone for a significant portion of the film. You meet him when Terran first sets off on his journey. He distracts Terran, loses the pig. Here's the pig screaming in the distance, and Gurgi kind of follows a little ways back, watches the Whiffins kidnap the pig sees Terran go off towards the Dark Lord's castle and it's like and he just kind of laments like oh my friend isn't coming back no one comes back from that castle mm-hmm. and then after Terran and the princess and the bard escape they meet up with him Gurgi leads them to the fey folk who have the pig has wandered into their midst and then he fades in the background again and then he shows up uh, towards the end of the film where they're all changed up and frees Terran from his shackles and then Terran is going to sacrifice himself and Gurgi's like, no, I won't let you and isn't himself. Mm-hmm. And specifically part of that is he, he's sacrificing himself for his friends. I don't really believe in that friendship that much. Yeah. And I think what would have been more interesting is if you would have taken a composite character of Creeper and Gurgi. Yes, that would have been really good. So you have Creeper, who is, you know, the Horned King's lackey. He's not treated very well by anyone in the army, by the Horned King himself. Although admittedly, when your boss is a skull-headed man called the Horned King, you knew what you were signing up for. But it would have been much more interesting if Terran had, while captured, treated him with some amount of kindness. And in doing so, that character then helped Terran and the others escape went with them on their journey, and then after learning the value of love and friendship, sacrificed himself for the people who showed him this new way of life. I think that would have been a much more compelling way to handle Gurgi and Creeper. Mm -hmm. It also means that Gurgi and Creeper were on screen as much if not more than Terran, which would work really well for that. Mm -hmm. There's also the fact that to a certain extent, resurrecting Gurgi cheapens the sacrifice that happens. I'm kind of of two minds about it, though, because taking the friendship with this creature that you found annoying towards the beginning of the film, as opposed to taking the sword to become a great warrior, plays against toxic masculine tropes, which I'm a fan of. So it's kind of six of one, half a dozen of the other. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Gurgi's emotional arc is still there. Just physical arc of him not being around is less impressive when he's only gone for like 10 minutes. Mm hmm. Quick sidebar, there's a whole thing with them trying to get out of the castle and they can't get the gate to open while they're on the boat. They commandeered and it goes, and we don't need it. We really don't need it. I don't know why that wasn't cut. I do have a thing about Gurgi that like, is one of the reasons I have fonder feelings about this movie than I might otherwise. When Gurgi's throwing himself off the edge, he's talking about like, Taran has many friends, 
Georgie has no friends. That was kind of the first time that me as a kid ever saw a character who could arguably be described as having like clinical depression or like an incredibly negative self-image. I didn't really know that was a thing that people could have but if, even then I still had a bit of that because I was, I was a lonely kid. L look who I turned into. It's not surprising. Um, <laughs> so that was really resonant for me in ways that I didn't really understand at the time but now I'm like okay yeah I get why that was important. I get why this character matters. I just wish that it was executed better because looking back I'm like I don't believe in any of these friendships. They don't they know each other for a day. Maybe, no two two. They <laughs> sleep next to a fire at one point. <laughs> I think that's really one of the biggest issues with the film is that it does a very poor job of building emotional investment in any of the characters so it's just them doing a bunch of generic fantasy trope things and that's typically why fantasy films don't do well is because they're so busy world building they forget to build these characters and make you care about them so it's all just a bunch of jargon coming at you when they acquire this magic sword and defeat this dark evil lord mm-hmm this film used to be about, what, 11 to 14 minutes longer? Yeah, about that. But Katzenberg, the newly appointed studio chairman, saw a cut of the film and loathed it, so he barricaded himself in the editing office and started just ripping it to shreds. And Michael Eisner had to show up and be like, no, I'm here to save the film. And they eventually stopped him from cutting out all of it, but he was still adamant about cutting out whole bits that would have made it more of a thing. Probably a lot of those were smaller character moments that would have made us understand these characters, believe them as friends. A really critical part. So the whole plan is to get the Black Cauldron and destroy it so the Horn King can't get it. Good, solid, reasonable plan. I've also read Lord of the Rings. But they don't really have a way of doing that. In one cut of the film, before they get the Black Cauldron and they immediately start wailing on it with everything they have on them, you know, sticks, clubs, rocks, everything, nothing's working. And they're like, oh, darn, we can't destroy this. And the witches laugh at them. Because they cut out those two or three shots of them trying to break the cauldron, it seemed like they just got the cauldron and stared at it, and that was it. To a certain extent, I can understand Krattenberg's reaction. This was initially planned for a 1984 release during the Christmas season. Why? What makes this seem like a Christmas movie? But they did a test screening at their Burbank, California studio, so a bunch of Disney staff watched it, brought their kids along, but... The Black Cauldron's a pretty dark film, and it's got some intense stuff going on. And apparently, the cut that they showed proved to be a little too frightening for many of the children in the audience. And many of them fled the theater in terror before it was finished. <laughs> so I can understand Kratzenberg's like, no, we can't show this to children. I, I must protect the children and the Disney brand. But it did result in a much worse film, not only just for the emotional and narrative arcs, also the music. So the original score for this film was done by Elmer Bernstein, the same guy who did the score for Ghostbusters. Wow, really? Yes. However, due to the cuts and revisions, most of the score didn't work anymore and it was completely cut. You can actually find his original score. It was very obscure for a while, but it's it's now a little bit more widely available. According to many music credits, it's actually pretty good. I didn't have time to listen to it before our recording, but if we find a link, we'll go ahead and toss it down below. Mm -hmm. It seems like there were so many parts of this movie that people really cared about, and then it just all 
tumbled into each other. One part that doesn't seem to be anywhere. So the peril for this film is that the Horn King will get the thing and then make the army and they will go off and do bad stuff to people we never encounter. The humans who exist in this world are Terran, his mentor, Princess Alanwe, the bard, and then the Horn King's minions. We never meet like a friendly local farming community or a small town of folks or a city full of traders who don't care or even just like some traders on the road it seems like this is a just empty world that the horn king taking over it not much is going to change it's not like they're going to overeat or something they're skeletons it makes it not matter one of the successes of lord of the rings sorry i keep coming back to this is that we spend like the first third of the first movie in the shire doing nothing of great import but we get the sense that, you know, oh, this place is nice. We like these people. They're funny. They're sweet. We don't want bad things to happen to them. So this existential threat of Sauron's orcs orking all over the place is a problem because we're like, oh no, if they don't do the thing, then the Shire gets scoured. And we worry about that. That makes the whole thing matter because they took the time to build this world. They also reestablish it a number of times. They reestablish it to a certain extent at the Inn and Bree, the Prancing Pony. <laughs> They do it to again to a certain extent in Rivendell, and then most of the scenes in Rohan are doing the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. We we could have done that for for Minas Tirith, but no one cares about Minas Tirith, whom we have this movie apparently. No, no, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need me to rant about how they failed at Minas Tirith where they succeeded at Rohan. However, uh, Rohan forever. I am no man. <laughs> And there's a good reason that we keep bringing up Lord of the Rings. It's one of the best-selling fantasy novels of all time, and it is the best fantasy film series of all time. You you might be able to quibble about Star Wars and how you classify fantasy, but... In terms of epic high fantasy... (laughs) Yes, no contest. And there are lots of failed attempts to be the next Lord of the Rings. And, like, it's just sad watching all these films have the same mistakes over and over again. You saw it in, like, the Warcraft movie. They had tons of world building and no character development. And a variety of other book adaptations. One of the reasons that things like Game of Thrones and, to a certain extent, Sword of Shannara do pretty well is that they're a TV series, so they have more time to, like, sit and talk about House Mooton's House Sigil. And, Mm -hmm. wow, here's how to make bread. And I I think in in general, most books do better as miniseries, but that's mostly because books are longer and have more content than a two to two and a half hour film is going to have. We're, I guess, spiraling more into like fantasy in general, but I feel like Disney movies are some of the best fantasy movies and even high fantasy movies that we have. Moana, Aladdin, to a certain extent, Beauty and the Beast, even though some of them are set in real places, or at least close enough to real places, they still feel like high fantasies. And they're better than, like, say, the Aragons of the world. And it's weird to me that we have this disconnect between the animated high fantasy and the live action high fantasy. I feel like if you just looked at what the animated high fantasy are doing and just make that into like, oh wait, I gotta say just make live action versions of all of those. Um, I mean, have good high fantasies. Whoopsies. Well, you're right about 30 to 40% of the time. I'll take it. (laughs) I like being right sometimes. And to be fair, Cinderella 2015 is a really good fantasy movie. Yeah, and I think most of the ones that fail, again, they get too bogged down in world building and they don't focus enough on character stuff. Mm-hmm. Or are they really don't do anything significantly new with the material. Mm. So there's this one thought I had in the middle of the film and I'm not 100% sure if the metaphor that I created holds up through the rest of the film, but I figure I'll share anyway. 
Is the sword that Taryn gets a metaphor for puberty? Because as soon as he gets that, he's super antagonistic, he's taking charge, he's grabbing Elowen's hand and, like, dragging her through the dungeon and fighting off all the Oryx and he think he can't be beat. It really seems like this sword is definitely a metaphor for a phallus. There's a beast in every man, and it stirs when you put a sword in his hand. I don't like that, but you're not wrong. So there's this guy, Bruno Bettelheim. Fuck Bruno Bettelheim, but... He has this whole, like, let's read every fairy tale as a puberty metaphor thing. It kind of works here, actually. Yeah, I see it. Fluter's an old man, so his, I guess, close thing got to a phallic image, his harp doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. And also, whenever he lies, it, like, breaks more. Mm-hmm. Which they don't actually ever come out and directly no, say no. in the film. While we're here, Fluter, useless character, should have just been cut. There's no reason for him to be there apart from, I guess, canon. Elanri's a lady, so her thing is a glowing sphere, which is the exact opposite of a phallic thing, I guess. And also inconsistently there. Like, she doesn't use it when they could definitely use a magic floating light. Also, if we're going to get really weird with this, which we are now, as a lich... (laughs) (laughs) As a lich, the Horned King does not have a penis. As a Lich King, the Horn King is sexless in general, but yeah, presumably. We don't know for sure. I don't want to know for sure. He didn't seem to have any interest in it. His activities are to give birth, but give birth to the undead, because he has this big cauldron thing, which is more yonic or woomy than anything else. This is getting weird into the weeds and has like problems with gender and stuff, but there's a long history of Disney villains being perversions of proper gender roles, and a old man who wants to give birth is very not right for generals for Disney sensibilities. You could make an argument that it all holds up and that Taryn giving up the sword and instead choosing family over sword having is him maturing and using puberty properly, I guess? That's kind of where this metaphor breaks down a little bit. Now, not so much with trading the sword for the Black Cauldron, but refusing the sword and instead reviving Gurgi. It's kind of refusing those toxic masculine ideals and instead focusing on a platonic friendship between another male-coded character. I don't know, if you really want to read into it, not wanting the sword back, maybe run as trans, but I'm not going to make that call. <laughs> Listen, I am 110% here for everybody being trans in the Disney canon, every single person. Let's just, just do it. Just bite that bullet. But you can also read it as Tarn moving from pre-puberty to doing the puberty, and then like when he gives up the sword twice, he moves into like a fatherly role, because like, he got him, Alanui, and this like childlike character, and then Fluter, who I guess is also there. Um... <laughs> Yeah. There's also the fact that we we have Taryn's pig farmer mentor who also knows magic at the beginning of the film, but we we never see him again. He's kind of mentioned because like the fair is like, oh, we'll just take the pig back to him for you, but we don't know if that works. That pig has a bad track record with like <laughs> going places. <laughs> yes. Again, this is us trying to like make something of the film because there's there's a lot to it. You could pick apart stuff with it, good and bad, but it's. There's not a whole lot to bite into. Yeah. Oh, speaking of biting into things, we haven't even talked about the titty witches. <laughs> so only one of the witches has, like, pronounced breasts that she's drawn with, and she is also the, the fattest and most sexual one. That's fine. It's weird seeing this, like, aggressively and uncomfortably sexual character in a Disney movie. Yeah, it's more sexualized than that brief scene with Madame Lim in Sword of the Stone. The There's the brothel in Aladdin, but that's a pretty short. And, like, Kita in Atlantis. Yeah. 
and it's not I don't mind that like you know women are being sexual or anything like that. that's fine and I support like fat women having a sex life but she's portrayed as aggressive and undesirable and that's what makes it feel gross yeah there's also a extended scene where the characters are turned into toads and Fluter is the object of her desires so she grabs him as a toad but then drops him in her cleavage and there's an extended sequences of him like hopping around in there I don't know why they kept that. <laughs> There's a lot of weird choices in here that are definitely trying to be more adult, but wind up just kind of feeling adult in the way that, I guess, uh, Shrek is adult, not adult in the way that the themes of Harry Potter are adult. Mm-hmm. I think really what this comes down to is it, the film is just executed poorly. In a variety of areas, the execution was poor. I'm not sure whether that's due to some of the cuts that we had, whether it's due to the long development time, or whether it was struggling to adapt the source material into a 90-minute Disney movie. I think that it's been long enough, and Disney has a better track record with this sort of thing, that we might see something new from this come out of them. Especially since, as of 2016, they have reacquired the rights to the books for filming. I think they're kind of waiting on it to see what the Sword in the Stone Disney streaming service movie, how well that does. I can totally see them trying to make those two things co-universal. Mm-hmm. And honestly, if they're going to do this, I kind of wish they would just do like adaption to the books, which are, you know, pretty solid books. I'm thinking kind of in the same vein as... The Dragon Prince or the Voltrons on Netflix, which are DreamWorks, sure. But that kind of adult enough, but still relatively kid-friendly uh, animation style. Yeah, like solidly in Avatar The Last Airbender role. Yeah, I mean, it could be really fun. I think it could be a good place. And, I mean, I wouldn't mind seeing it in 2D. I like I like 2D stuff. I, I, I'm sad we've more or less moved away from 2D stuff. Mm-hmm. I think that about does it for us for this week. Any closing thoughts? I meant to mention this earlier, but there's a bit where Gurgi says yikes, and it's just a really bad line read. <laughs> it is. The, the only proper response to that line read is, yikes! I was hoping that there'd be a little bit more to the Black Cauldron, but it looks like our series of Disney content is going to go out on a bit of a whimper. That fits with 2018. Yeah. This isn't to say that we're never going to watch a Disney movie again, but we're not going to watch it for being a Disney movie. We watch it as part of something else. Mm -hmm. But as may have heard from previous episodes, in the new year, we will be beginning our comics bracket. Shortly after this episode goes live, we will have the bracket graphic posted so all of you listeners at home can fill yours out in anticipation for the first round. We'll also have a post explaining our choices in seeding the bracket and what films made it on the list and what didn't. If you want to make sure to be informed when those go live, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. For episodes, you can listen to us on Podbean and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in next time. This has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast.